0: what causes division in the church? Most people look towards theology, and we see a lot of churches that have been created or or divided over maybe even what we might think is a, a small, minor doctrinal issue. We might see an argument like, how should the books of the Bible be organized? Should they be organized by date, or should they be organized by genre? And that might cause a division. Maybe it's, uh, uh, something that I would think is fairly minor of what translation should we use. Some people really emphasize a, th- a type of translation and think this is the only translation that should be used, and then we see division b- about that translation. And then uh, something that a lot of people don't even realize is there are some people that divide churches, not even over the, the uh, English translation, but what Greek manuscript should you use? Should you use the uh, minority text or the critical text. And a lot of you don't even know what I'm talking about when I talk about the critical or the minority text. And yet we see churches divide over that kind of thing. But that's not the only thing that churches divide over. Sometimes it's about personal preferences, right? Do we prefer chairs or do we prefer, prefer pews? Maybe we divide over hymns or contemporary music. Some churches divide over programs. You know, that, that, this church just does not emphasize or love our youth enough. I think Christian talked about that today in Sunday school, didn't he? The, churches, if we really love our youth, then we should provide a youth program, and that's the only way we're going to see the church grow. And you guys don't do that, so we're going to leave you, because you obviously don't care for the youth although I think Christian Sunday School might have debunked that a little bit. What about building use? How should the building be used? How about how to spend money? Ooh, finances of a church. That can really divide it. How about something as little as, what does the bulletin look like? Or should we even have a bulletin? I think there were several centuries where saints who gathered did not even have a bulletin, and yet I know some people that have left the church because they didn't like the bulletin. Decorations? Or even who decorates? Maybe even potlucks. Yes, potlucks. be a dividing point. There's a story of a church that uh, there was a a division and they they just couldn't get past each other. So one group in the church decided to sue the other group and they took it to civil court. And well, the judge threw it out and said, I'm not going to judge on this matter. So they they ended up taking it to a, a church mediator. And what the church mediator discovered is when they, when they were able to clear all of the mess, they found out the root cause of the division was a boy got a bigger piece of ham than an elder. Yes, even food. Creates division in the church. In fact, you might not think this, but food has caused a lot of division in the church. We can look back into the early church and we see the obvious Jew versus Gentile dispute over clean or unclean foods. That was a huge dispute in the church and it created division. But even within Jewish and Gentile communities, there was division. And in Acts 6, we see a division in distribution. The Hellenists felt like they weren't getting a good, or they weren't being favored as well as the true Jews were. And there was division among food. In 1 Corinthians, during community, people were jumping ahead of others for in line. And there was division about communion and who should have communion rights and who should get in first on communion. And they started using communion as a way to separate out those who were better from those who were worse. And we look at this and we we see all of these, what we claim are causes of division, but in all honesty, these are not the cause of division in the church. These are simply symptoms of idolatry in the church. James very blatantly points out that our divisions and our fights come from our own desires, And so we let these desires take control of our hearts, and they become idols in our hearts. Our preferences become idols. And so our fights come from our very own desires. As a church, when we divide over music, decor, and even food, it's because those things have become our God. Now, many of us have experienced church hurt, And a part of the reason for this is church is a place for the broken. We try not to think of ourselves as as having already made it. Oftentimes we try not to think of ourselves as self-righteous. And so we come to church because we recognize that we need each other. And yet, when broken people who need God's grace come and gather, we gather as a group of broken, hurt people, and there are bound to be some divisions. But we are called to something greater. We are called to be united in Christ. And that is what we will talk about today as we get into our series, Better Together a look through Ephesians. So we're up to Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. This is the, the first uh, application from this letter. So the way Paul writes is he almost always lays out theological truths. He lays out this theology because theology theology drives application. Theology drives behavior. How you live Reveals your theology oftentimes people will talk about a theology and will claim that we have this theology But oftentimes our behavior does not reveal that theology For example when you have anxiety What kind of theology does that reveal we talk about how we trust God and we can talk until we're blue in the face about how We trust God, but when I have anxiety What is that revealing about my theology? Does that reveal that I truly trust God, or does that reveal that there's something else I might trust more than God? There are so many different things, behaviors, that come out and reveal our true theology, but the way to change that isn't necessarily to change our behavior. The way to change it is to change our theology. So we need to go back, and we need to go through the process of saying, okay, so I have anxiety that reveals that I'm not really trusting God, that reveals that I don't, why don't I trust God? Why am I not really trusting God with my life? And so then you have to walk back, and you take that false theology that you have. Maybe you think that God is not powerful enough to do what you want. Or maybe it's that you don't trust that God's best is better than your ideas. Maybe you don't believe in a real future hope, and so you have anxiety. And so what you do is, instead of just saying, well, I'm going to push through and I'm going to make myself not have anxiety, you go through and you find that false theology and you replace it with true theology. And so that's what Paul has done here. He's laid out this theology for us, and we can now study this theology in the first three chapters, and we can, and we can replace our false theology with a true theology, so I have anxiety and I think that, that God's best is not better than mine. So I go through and I look at what is God's best. That we have a future hope. That I'm a son of his. That I have an inheritance. That there is eternal life and that I can live for that eternal life. I don't have to live for the here and the now. So what if I don't get my favorite Christmas present this December? There's still something better in the future. And that helps alleviate my anxiety. So he outlines all of this theology, and then we get to to chapter 4, and he starts to give us the application. So we hit into this first section of application, and today, 1 through 6, we're actually going to divide it into two different lists. So the first list is going to be this real solid application, and then the second list is going to be examples of this application. So I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to be the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Did you catch a theme there? One, one, one. I can imagine as Paul is writing this and somebody's dictating it and he just starts to get in the flow and he's emphasizing this unity that we have, this oneness that we have in Christ. So let's jump in and and discover it a little bit more. I therefore. So what's the therefore, therefore? It's there because he is writing because of the theological truths found in the first three chapters. Therefore, this is how we shall live. So what are some of the theological truths that, that he is, that that is the therefore. I think there's an inheritance, that you have an inheritance, that you are a saint. Too often we beat ourselves up and we try to say that we are just sinners. But if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you are no longer seen as a sinner, but you are seen as a saint. You are seen as holy. It's not like you like just only the people that serve their whole lives as missionaries or just those people that are pastors are holy you are holy if you have put your faith and trust in Christ no matter how bad of an attitude you had coming into church you are holy you are righteous let that sink in that God has made you that way it's nothing that you've done God made you holy God made you righteous. God made you a saint. But another theological truth that that is producing the therefore is that he is uniting all things in him all things. He is in the process. God is in the process of uniting all things. Now, a couple things we need to note about that is, number one, that means that there was division and there was chaos. When man sinned, when we rebelled, we shook our fist at God and we said, forget you, creator of the world, the one who has a plan, the one who created with moral principles. Forget you, we know how to do things better. And every single one of us has done this. Now, you may not have done this in a way that someone else does. So often we love to like point out someone else's failures. Well, I'm not a murderer like that person over there, so I'm pretty righteous. Maybe you've never committed adultery, so you think you're a righteous person. But even when you know that there's something right to do and you don't do it, like you're just going to be lazy that day? Like, you know, God is calling you to go help someone, and you're like, "Nah, I'm not going to do that. That's rebellion. That's shaking your fist at God and saying, God, I know how to live better than you do. That's rebellion, and that creates chaos. That has created separation and death and destruction in this world. But God is in the process of uniting all things together in him. He is in the process of undoing that rebellion. That's a pretty amazing theological truth. So we can walk through, and we've walked through over the last few months, going through all of these theological truths, and they're so important that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he's made us alive together with him, that we've been saved by grace, that we are his workmanship. That word workmanship is where we get the term poetry from, and it means original artwork. Think of that for a second. You are an original from God. Now, my kids make originals all the time, and they love their originals. Other people might not love them. Some people might look at them and say, this is is what artwork from a seven-year-old would look like. And I'd say, yes, you're right. They are seven. That's his artwork. It's nothing special, except that he made it. So to me, it's really special. We have originals from our kids hanging up all over our house. You're an original of God's. He looks at you the way my kids look at their artwork, and they think it's something special. He looks at you the way I look at their artwork. That's pretty special theology right there, right? But then we get further on into chapter 2, and we see this big point of theology that he wants to make, and that is that there are divisions that humans love to divide ourselves by ethnic and racial and all kinds of categories. We just love to make up categories to divide ourselves, don't we? In America, we might make it political categories. I'm Democrat, I'm Republican, let's not even talk to each other. Can you even be friends with someone on the other side of the political aisle? Some would answer no. We love to divide ourselves, but what chapter 2 emphasizes is not only has God saved you from, you, from being dead in your trespasses and sins, and he calls you your original artwork, but he's also saying, and he made us all united together. This is a work of God, that there are no longer boundaries, that all those racial and ethnic and political and uh, categorical boundaries that we love to create, God has walked all those nulls, knocked all those walls down. God has said, no, I have united you together. I have made one group. And you are all equal in God's standing. There is no reason for division within the church. And then he goes on to explain the mystery of God, how he is uniting, how he has made us all united together. And then he gives us this prayer, and we studied that prayer a couple weeks ago, and how there is these steps to growing in the maturity. Because God has made you holy, now how do you mature in that holiness? Well, you can follow these steps. And it starts off with reminding yourselves of the theological truths. And as you remind yourself of theological truths, then you let... Christ dwell in your heart, and we studied that that dwelling in your heart meant to take up permanent residency, that there's a difference between temporary residency and permanent residency. And too often, Christians say, God, you can rent out a section of my heart, but don't you dare touch those walls. Don't paint them. Don't knock them down. It's not necessarily yours to do with what you please, but you you can take up some residency there. But as we remind ourselves of theological truths and, and how we left to ourselves will utterly fail, we start to let God take a permanent residency. And we say, God, go ahead and knock those walls down. Paint whatever color you want. You want to add an addition? Go for it. Because we understand that God is trustworthy. And from there, we start to understand his love for us the richness of his love, and the depth of his love. And it's through that process that we get, begin to understand the fullness of God, that God's fullness dwells in us richly, and we understand that we really become that piece of artwork that he has created us to be. We really start to become that original masterpiece that he stamped on and said, that you are mine, you are my artwork. So it's because of all these things I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. So this prisoner for the Lord, he's just reminding them how seriously he takes this. He's saying, hey, look, this is so serious. I'm in prison right now because of it. I believe this so strongly. I'm not writing you just saying, do as I say, not as I do. He's saying, I'm doing this too. I'm living this out. This is serious. This is real for me. This is life and death. This is my life. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So there's a couple things going on here. Uh, The word worthy, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. The word worthy in the Greek is axios, and is in a manner deserving of, or in balance with, or in step with. So I urge you to walk in a manner that is in step with the calling. The call, this word calling means like the true essence of something, the true nature or the true being. So, you know, if an apple is an apple, you would, that would be its calling, its true essence. If an apple tasted like an orange and you took a bite out of it, you might like take a step back a little confused. Is that really an apple? There's something wrong with this apple. Its essence isn't really there. So he's saying, walk, be in balance or in step with the calling, the the essence to which you have been called and what have you been called to? Well, we go back to those theological chapters that you're saints, that you're holy. So now you need to walk in step with the essence of who you are, and that is the holiness that God has placed upon you, that God has made you righteous, that God has made you alive together with him. And then he gives us a list of ways that we can do this. Now, chapters 4, 5, and 6 all are going to be ways that we can walk worthy of that calling, that we can actually live in balance with that essence of being God's child. But he starts off with this list and this list is going to build and it's going to climax in, in verse 3. So, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this is these are practical ways that you can live out that very essence of being called holy. And the first one is humility. Now, oftentimes we hear the word humility and we think it just means lowliness. Like, just think low of yourself. But that's not necessarily what it means. But it wasn't always a virtue. We kind of, our, our culture, I think, has this false idea of this, first of all. But then we also consider it a virtue, which I think it is a virtue. But for the Roman era, this was actually not a virtue. In fact, there was an emperor who refused uh, some titles and he actually ended up being killed for it because he was considered humble. In fact, the virtue for the Romans was self-sufficiency. And I think I just stabbed a couple of you in the heart there. The virtue for the Romans was to be self-sufficient. That was the virtue. And I think that's a virtue that is the opposite of humility that has plagued humanity since the fall. If we look back through all the biblical <clears throat> texts, we can see humanity struggling with self-sufficiency. We don't want to see ourselves as dependent upon God. And dependency upon God is actually the, the early Christians saw humility as an idea of being dependent upon God. It's dependency on God. So you could see why the Romans would think Christians were weak for this idea of humility, that they were dependent. No, we want to be independent. We're strong, self-sufficient, independent people. And so from the Tower of Babel, we can see this idea even. So the, the Tower of Babel, we're familiar with the story that they were going to build a tower up to heaven. But what we often forget about is they weren't just building a tower, but they were going to build themselves a tower and a city. The city represented the marketplace, and they didn't need God because anything they wanted, they could just go to the marketplace. If I want food, I go to the marketplace. I don't have to depend on God for my food. Do you relate at all? I don't need to depend on God for rain. I don't need to depend on God for my crops. When I'm hungry, I go to the store, and I buy whatever I want. I'm pretty self-sufficient and because of that disconnect I forget to realize that it is God who has produced all of those crops that brings them to the store that now I can buy but it wasn't just a city where they could go buy whatever they want at the marketplace there was also a tower the tower was the religious symbol and the idea behind that is that they no longer needed God for morality but they could decide their own morality they didn't need to turn to Scripture for the authority, for moral authority. We could just get together and we could decide the rules ourselves. And, you know, there, there, there's some subjective morality. What, what's right for you might not be right for me, and that's okay. Does that sound familiar? Do you see a culture that says, God, we don't need you for moral authority. We can make up our own moral authority. So we see this idea of self-sufficiency has plagued humanity and has actually been considered a virtue even to this day. And we bring it into the church and we think we don't need each other in the church. The whole sermon series is better together and yet we think that means I'm better together because I bring stuff that you need. I don't need you, are you kidding me? I bring the stuff and I help you out. Instead of thinking in humility that really I need to be dependent upon God. And part of that dependency is coming together as the body of Christ. And letting different people speak into our lives. And letting different people help us out. So that's this idea of humility, is it's Being dependent upon God. It's not just thinking lowly of yourself. In fact, when you become dependent upon God, I don't necessarily think that you have a low thought of yourself. We go back to the first three chapters, and what does God call us? Saints, holy. It's not a self-righteous thought. It's not like building myself up because I think I'm better than I am. But it's looking at who God is and who I am because of God. So it's a proper view of God and a proper view of myself and recognizing my dependence on God and that I would not be holy except for God. And I have to be dependent upon God for my holiness. So that's humility. Gentleness is strength under control. The original term came to mean a, a broken horse. So if you've been around an unbroken horse, they can be pretty wild. But a broken horse is under control, right? Especially if The rider knows what they're doing. I'm not that rider. I have to trust the other person that's already broken the horse and is telling me what to do. But either way, when you're around a horse, when, I am a little afraid of horses, I'll admit it. Uh, The first church I worked for was like a, uh, it was a big ranching community and so there are all these girls in 4-H that just thought it was the funniest thing on Earth that I was afraid of horses. Uh, but they got big teeth. But not only do they have big teeth, they've got huge muscles. I mean, you get around a horse and you just can feel the power from their legs, right? Don't go around their legs. That's dangerous. Uh, but you see what I'm saying? They're, uh, uh, an un- unbroken horse? is just as powerful as a broken horse. A broken horse is just as powerful as an unbroken horse. The difference is the broken ho- horse's power is under control. So that's why it ended up becoming this uh, tr- or defined as strength under control. It doesn't mean that you're weak. It means that you have learned how to control your strength. When I think about this, I often think about bees, because I used to be a beekeeper. And, I, you know, I'd, I'd let bees crawl on me. I'm not afraid of getting stung at all. And there would be a bee on me, and I sometimes I'd think about how easily I could just squash that little bee. You know, it, it wouldn't take much for that bee's guts to be all over my fingers. But I wanted to be gentle with that bee because I loved what they produced, the honey. And the more bees I have, the more honey I'm going to get. And so I was very gentle. I had the strength to squash them, and yet... I wanted to make sure that they were well taken care of. And that's what gentle is. is It's controlling your strength. So we've got humility, dependence upon God, and gentleness, strength under control, with patience. Now, this, the original term here is long-tempered. In fact, I think the King James still has long-tempered. I shouldn't say still. The King James reads long-tempered. What that means is not short-tempered, Right? What does someone with a short temper have? They're gonna explode like that. It doesn't take much for them to get set off, right? We all know short-tempered people, and we have all tippy-toed around short-tempered people. This is the opposite of that. This is having a very long fuse. Not letting just anything set you off. Having the ability to control your anger humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. This term bearing means to tolerate or endure a difficult person. We all know difficult people. I'm sure some of you are thinking about that difficult person right now. How do you endure them? Part of the problem that we have, I think, and it, it, it is a cultural problem but it also seeps into the church, is that we don't necessarily want to bear with one another. And instead, so instead of like enduring with that difficult person, what we do is we seek out people that we enjoy. Because let's face some facts, it's much easier to hang out with people we enjoy than people that are difficult. And so instead of pursuing the difficult person, we pursue the people we like. And that's flying in the face of what God has commanded us us to do here. But we are to bear, we are to endure with that difficult person. So when I think of difficult people, sometimes I think of Raiders fans That's a joke, that's a joke. But, uh, but I do look at our culture and I see this happening with generations. And so, generations love to make fun of one another because they aren't similar. So, some generations learned how to drive a clutch. And they can drive it all over the place. And for some reason, they think that makes them better. And some generations are really good at text. And they're texting each other, or they like to get on whatever the latest social media is, because I can't keep up with that anymore. And they, for some reason, think they're better, because they're more up to date with tech. And they love to make fun of the other generation for that. And we, what we do is we end up separating each other out by generations. Because the other generation is just too difficult. They don't quite understand. And that flies in the face of what we're called to. The generation wars should never enter into the church. We should never be making fun of someone in another generation because their generation was different. Every generation has something unique and special to bring to the table. The older generation, young people, listen to me, the older generation has some amazing things for you to learn. Don't leave them behind. Young people also have amazing things. Older generation, sometimes it, you look at them and you think, what on earth? They're just, they're, they're lost. What on earth? Let's just leave them behind. Hell, we're going to hell in a handbasket. And that's not true either. I see the younger generation in our church, and I see amazing people that are capable of amazing things. Don't leave them behind. So we're to bear with one another, to endure those people that kind of drive you nuts. Pursue those people in other generations. And we're to do it in love. This term love here is agape. Agape and it means a self-sacrificing, choosing to do what is right for the other person no matter what it costs me. It's not an emotional love. We run into that problem quite a bit in our culture where we think love is an emotion. This agape can develop an emotion, but it's choosing to love that person. So we are to bear with one another, we are to endure the difficult person with love. Not just bear it, not just endure it like, oh, here comes Cindy. Boy, I really don't like to deal with her, but, you know, I have to. But to actually start to see that they are God's masterpiece, too. Start to look for, when you run into that, next, that difficult person, start to look for all the cool, unique ways God has created them. Don't just tolerate it, but love them as you endure with them. And this list climaxes in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So this, we're eager to maintain the unity. That means we should be pursuing unity. So often we look for ways to divide. We look for ways to divide one another. We look at theological distinctives and we say, whoa, there's a good line to draw there. And I think this is actually one of the reasons why theology can be a, a uniting thing instead of a dividing thing. Because when we, look at the, when we look at theology, we can look at some of the major areas of agreement and say, we are united in those areas. But our tendency is to look at our major areas of disagreement and then to divide along those, right? So this is actually what drove the fundamental movement. The fundamental movement started, interestingly enough, by Presbyterians. And and what they wanted to do was unite churches around the fundamentals of the faith. Now, what happened was, eventually, the fundamental movement got hijacked by legalists, and so fundamental became synonymous with legalism. I would like to reclaim that word. I don't want legalists to win over fundamentalism. Fundamentalism, if you go back to the fundamentals, it means, like, the bare basics of what it means, right? That's the fundamentals of the faith. And so if we can unite around those fundamentals, then we don't need to divide so sharply on all of the non-fundamentals, what I like to call tertiary. Someone once thought I was making that word up. It's not a made-up word. It is like the third, you know, if there's primary issues, secondary issues, you've got third, tertiary issues. But we need to know what are the fundamentals. Fundamentals. I think oftentimes what happens is we take some of those tertiary issues and we make them fundamental issues and then that's what drives division in the church. So theology can actually be a uniting thing. The deity of Christ, the atoning death, the bodily resurrection, the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Those can unite us. So as a church... We don't claim to be Calvinist or Arminian. And I don't actually, I'm not gonna separate you out by Calvinist or Arminian. What I care much more about is do you make that issue the primary issue? When we start to try to make Calvinism or Arminianism the primary issue, that's when we start to see divisions. But I have some very dear friends that are amazing theologians that are awesome pastors that are Minyan. I have some amazing friends that are amazing pastors that are great theologians that are Calvinists. And I can be in solid relationship with those guys and get around them and have great conversations. And a big part of it is because they're not making that the primary issue. So we can let that... Uh, drive, we can let theology drive unity actually. But what's interesting here is it's eager to maintain. This word maintain means to like keep it together, right? And so we have to recognize that Christ is the one who, who actually unified the church. The church is unified for Christ, in Christ. We're not the ones that created the unity. That's important for us to note. It is Christ that created the unity. What is our responsibility then? Our responsibility is to maintain the unity that we find in Christ. And one of the ways that we do that is we turn back through the first three chapters and remind ourselves of the theology there. So we're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The word bond here is like uh, uh, is something that brings two things together. You could think of like super glue is a bonding agent, right? So what is the bonding agent? It is the term peace. Now peace for the Second Temple audience didn't mean an absence of conflict. Oftentimes that's how we define peace. Absence of conflict or chaos or maybe we'd say like a tranquil, tranquil state. But that's not what peace means to this audience. Peace actually would mean to, to flourish and thrive. And if we look through the book of Proverbs, we find over and over again that in order for uh, a community to have shalom, to have peace, in order for a community to thrive and to flourish, you would have to have people who are willing to put others' needs before their own. Wherever you find a community where people are trying to put their needs before others, you will find a dying community. But wherever you find a community, where people are putting other needs before their own, you will find a thriving community. So we can look back to this list, and it all this word peace kind of comes from humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. All of this is putting others before yourself. And that helps us to have a community full of shalom that's flourishing, that's thriving. And then he changes, and he gives us a uh, 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 list that actually uh, shows us, gives us an example of, of unity. Now, what's interesting is we don't have to have, a, or in a body, we can have diversity. And we'll actually start, there is one body. So this is the body. He's, he's using our bodies as a metaphor for the body of Christ, right? And within the body, there is diverse expressions. Not everything in the body is an eyeball, that would look a little weird and it would be a very inefficient body. You can't have only hands. You can't have only brains. Right? You need diverse expressions. You need feet, you need hands, you need eyes, you need mouths. And yet they all come together and they act as one. And so here we see examples of of diverse expressions coming together and unifying together so that the body would grow. So there is one body, this is a reference to the body of Christ, that all the churches, from Christ to today, every believer is in the body of Christ. Now throughout Scripture we also see the local church, uh, and there are local expressions of that body. A local church is a group of believers that have committed to each other, that we would meet together and we would encourage each other, that we would be unified together, And yet there is unity in the body of Christ as a whole. So we can look at other churches in Flagstaff and we can be unified with them without actually having to agree fully with everything they say. So that's why I say when we go back to fundamentals, we can actually have some disagreements on doctoral distinctives. So I can look at some more charismatic churches and one of the ways I can actually be unifying with them is by not trying to make them less charismatic. And when a charismatic person comes into this church, I can say, you know, I know of a great charismatic church down the road. And I can be an encouragement, and I can pray for other churches here in Flagstaff. So there is one body and one spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. It's just a reference to the Holy Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. This one hope is that Christ is uniting all things together in him. This is a future hope that we have, that Christ is uniting all things. Now, in the Bible, hope doesn't ever mean, like, wishful thinking. Boy, I sure do hope something happens one day. But it's knowing of a sure thing, that God is uniting all things under him, and that we will eventually, one day, see the final project product. One hope that belongs to your call, one Lord... This term Lord is a reference to Jesus. Now what's interesting is throughout the Old Testament, everywhere you see, uh, in your English translations, if you see capital L-O-R-D, that is a reference to Yahweh. But the Jews thought that Yahweh was such a, a holy word that they couldn't write it out, they couldn't say it, so they ended up replacing it with Lord. And so what Paul is doing here is actually referencing Jesus, not just as a master, but he's equating him with God here. So one Lord, one faith, this is a a term for doctrine, and once again, this is the fundamentals of the doctrine. One faith, there is one true doctrine that one day we will all finally have complete revelation of. One baptism This is a a reference to spiritual baptism. We had a lot of baptisms last week. It was really awesome. Uh, Now, those those physical baptisms were only symbolic of the one true baptism, and that is our immersion into Christ. And this all culminates, or the climax of this list, is verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all so what's interesting about this list here is that it climaxes with uh, God the Father, but it's also, we see the Trinity in here. We see the Spirit. We see Jesus. And we see God. And we see this unity within the Godhead. So within God the Father, we see that He is over all. This means that He is sovereign. That He is the creator of all. And then that He is also Through all and in all. And once again, this means that he can use all things to accomplish his will. Whatever it is in your life that just seems horrible, God can use that. So all those things that are happening right now that are in rebellion against God, don't lose heart. He can use that. That evil thing that happened to you, don't lose heart. He can heal you and use that in your life to bring goodness to others and glory to God. So often our idols bring division to the church. But we are called to eagerly maintain unity. This means putting our preferences aside so that as a church we can thrive. And the only way to do that is to be reminded of our hope, our future calling. That this life is not the end, but God who is the indwelling spirit, who is our master and in whom we have identity, who is the creator of all and can use all things for his glory and our good. He is the one calling us to unity. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. For these great theological truths that when applied change our behavior and change our lives. And we pray that as we discover the idols in our life, we would go back and replace our bad theology with your theology. That we would be changed for your glory and our good. In your name we pray.